Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of June 2nd from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. We continue our look through this Gospel. Mark chapter 10, the subject will change a little bit for us in the midst of this teaching segment of Jesus that he's having with his disciples. I want to remind you that we were created, among other things, for the purpose of glorifying God. As we come to Scripture this morning, we are reminded that we exist for Him. We don't exist for ourselves, we exist for Him, for His purposes. As we have been looking at Genesis chapter 1 on Wednesday nights, we haven't quite gotten to the end of the chapter just yet, but uh, we look at Genesis chapter 1, we will realize that when God created us as human beings, He created us in His image. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says this, that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. God made us, all of us, male and female, in His image. Now, among other things, with that, what, what does an image bearer have to do? What is the role of an image bearer? Well, it is to reflect the image of the, of, the, of the main one. So what, the, what does that mean? That means that you and I are created to reflect or to make known the image or the glory of God. We exist to do that. So for us, on a, on a tip, let's say we take a, take a typical uh, weeknight, it's 10 o'clock at night, if you're still up at 10 o'clock at night, and you can see past the trees in your yard, the night sky, and you look at the stars and you are inclined as you look at the stars to marvel and to wonder at the God who created those things. They point you, hopefully, to the majesty of God. Well, the same thing that the stars might do for you, we are to do for the rest of creation. We are there to, to, to point people to represent God, to have God, have people, have this world see, see us. If the stars could look back at us, the idea would be that they would see the image of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the whole earth there is not just talking about the plants and the animals and the waters and the mountains. It's talking about us. There are seven, roughly what, seven plus billion people on the planet today. All made in the image of God intended to reflect the glory of God. That's why God made us. Even the heavens declare the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1, if I was to read that, I'm going to read this for you. You don't have to turn there. Colossians chapter 1, in case you have any doubts about this, this is speaking of Jesus Christ Himself. And it says this, For by Him, All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. You and I exist this morning for the purpose of reflecting God, making Him known, reflecting His image to those around us. We have been created for the purposes of Christ. In other words, we don't exist for ourselves. 
We cannot use, well, I want this, or I want this, or I feel this way, or I feel that way, as we come to the Lord, because He's the one who has made us and molded us and shaped us for His purposes. We belong to Him. Now, why am I talking about that this morning as we start? Because as we look at Mark chapter 10, and what Jesus has to say to us this morning, we need to remember that we exist for Him and that we uh, have our life and our breath to reflect who He is. And Jesus Himself this morning, as He does this, as He teaches on marriage in particular, He's going to take us back to Genesis chapter 1 and the reason that we were created to begin with. So Mark chapter 10, we're going to read these first 12 verses. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the house of the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Heavenly Fathers, we have come to this passage. Lord, I know there are many things that uh, are very personal and uh, applicable to many of us in this room this morning. May we as your people who exist for your purposes submit our hearts and our lives to you this morning so that we may accomplish the role you've given us as image bearers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now what's going on here is this. Jesus is continuing, as we've seen now for a few weeks, He is continuing to make His way from the northern part of Israel to Jerusalem. He is on His way to the cross. And He is teaching the disciples mostly kind of out of sight. We have seen this for the last couple of chapters, that what Jesus is doing is taking His disciples He's trying to remain relatively unseen publicly, and he's taking them through all these things that he wants them to know before he's crucified. Now, in the, in the midst of all this, as they move farther south, inevitably, apparently, some crowds do form. And in the, as, as the crowds do form, as he works his way towards Jerusalem, we see there in verse 1 that he began to go ahead and teach the crowds. Now, it's kind of interesting. It says, as was his custom, or as was his usual routine now we have a lot of different things in our minds that we associate with the ministry of jesus and mark has talked about a lot of those things like casting out demons and miraculous healings and even the resurrection from the dead but if you want to know what jesus did most of the time if you want to know what his custom was if you want to know how jesus spent the majority of his ministry it's right there in verse 1 chapter 10 he saw the people and he began to teach there's a reason that uh, people often called him rabbi. A rabbi is a teacher. 
That was the name by which most people came up to him and talked to him by. That's the name they addressed him by. They called him Rabbi. He is a teacher. And so when a crowd gets together, it is Jesus' custom, it is his instinct, it's his calling to teach. So that's what he does. He begins to teach. And as he was teaching them, and we've seen this happen before, there are those who decide to try to trip him up. They want to cause him problems. And remember that Jesus has now been around for a while, and as he's moving towards Jerusalem, there are religious leaders that want to trip him up. And so they've chosen this topic, and they've chosen the topic of marriage and divorce. Guess what? This isn't a new thing. We think that marriage and divorce has only been controversial for the last 30 or 40 years. It ain't ain't that way. This was a point of contention back then. If this wasn't a big deal, why would they have brought it up? They have brought this thing up as we see this chapter chapter 10, verse 2. They bring this up because they want to cause Jesus problems. All right? They didn't bring this up because they wanted to learn. They asked him this question because they are looking to cause trouble. So what is it about this topic of marriage and divorce, not just in 2019, but in Jesus' day, that would have been so controversial? Well, this, this is going to touch on a couple of different things. And we need to get into our minds. We, we sometimes think that the issues that we're dealing with today in modern society are all brand new. They're not. There's not a human condition that we face today that wasn't around in Jesus' day. There's not a human condition that we face today that wasn't around in the day of King David, or in the days of Abraham, or even before. There's nothing new under the sun, as the preacher from Old Testament would say. Believe it or not, divorce was a big deal in Jesus' day. And they asked him if it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So they're trying to cause problems. Now, why would this be a problem? Because there were two there were two schools of thought that were dominant in Jesus' day about marriage and divorce. One school of thought, and this is based upon, by the way, a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, basically says that if a man divorces his wife, he has to give her a certificate of divorce that he can send her away. And it says that he can do that for anything indecent. By the way, women, you didn't have as much freedom. (laughs) This is primarily on the guy. So the guy was able to divorce his wife in Deuteronomy 24.1 for anything described as indecent. Now, two schools of thought. One said indecent really was restricted to meaning adultery or something along those lines. Another school of thought said indecent could mean almost anything. And I am not exaggerating by saying that we have writings that attest to this. If she burned dinner, and he thought that was a really indecent dinner, he was allowed to divorce if he wanted to. That's a pretty, <laughs> I don't know, to me that's kind of stretching the word of indecent a little bit, but. So you had one school of thought that basically said only indecent means adultery, Deuteronomy 24.1, and one school of thought that indecent means pretty much anything you want it to mean. So you have these two schools of thought. Lots of people, and so maybe they were trying to get Jesus to tick off half the population. <laughs> maybe that's part of what it was. Also, remember, we're not too far removed here 
from a guy named King Herod beheading John the Baptist. Now, if you remember the circumstances around uh, Herod beheading John the Baptist, it was this topic, basically. John, uh, King Herod had uh, arranged to marry his sister-in-law. And they raised, his sister-in-law divorced Herod's brother, and it's a, it's, a, it's a weird little family thing going on. And John the Baptist had called out the king on his approach to marriage and divorce. And the result was John the Baptist lost his head. So it may well be these, these, uh, these leaders here are looking to give Jesus a troubled Herod. If they can get Jesus, because Jesus is kind of working his way now down to where John the Baptist was, was at. And we, we, can get, we can get Jesus in trouble with Herod. Well, maybe he'll chop his head off for us. So these guys are trying to cause trouble, either by getting Jesus to say something that makes people mad, or more importantly, probably trying to get Jesus' head chopped off by ticking off King Herod. That's, that's what's going on. It's a hot-button issue, to say the least. So they want to know, Jesus, what do you say? So Jesus appeals to them and said, well, what, is the, what, is, what did Moses come out? What does the law say? And they cite the law. The law talks about a certificate of divorce and that allowing her to be sent away. Now, here, what the certificate of divorce was, by the way, if, if, um, it, it, was, it was actually put in place by Moses to protect women. So let's say... Just hypothetically speaking, there's a man and woman, for whatever reason, he decides to divorce her and he sends her away. If he does not give her a certificate, if he doesn't give her a piece of paper, if you will, that says, this woman is no longer married to me, what is her options at that point? She's got none. She can't go back home. She can't remarry somebody else. She's got nothing unless that guy gives her some evidence that she is in fact divorced. And that frees her up to do whatever else that she needs to do to survive. And so this certificate thing was not a command that you must divorce. It was something that was put in place to protect the women who were being divorced so that they would have options, so that they would not be uh, essentially pushed into poverty, so they would have the ability to, to potentially remarry or to go back home or to do whatever else they need to do to survive. It was proof that she was no longer married. It was a legal way to protect her. It wasn't a prescription. It was a way of providing. It was a provision, if you will. So Jesus says this. He goes, listen, this wasn't a command. This was something that was put into place because you guys, how does he describe it? He says, you guys have hardness of the heart. (laughs) Something was put in place because you guys are a bunch of sinners. That's what he said. And then Jesus does something that's really, for us, important this morning. He goes back to the beginning. He says in verse 6, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother, or a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we've already read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Now, what's going on here? What is Jesus trying to teach them and this morning teach us? Well, I mentioned a while ago, and you see in both these passages of Genesis, that God has created us as a human race in his image. And in particular, he says there in chapter 1, verse 27, 
He says that we were created in His image, male and female. And in chapter 2, he reiterates this idea that there is something of His image in the joining together of male and female. There is, as image bearers of God in this world, a role for us, both individually and as married people. There is something unique, and it's a mystery that Paul talks about later on. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Paul calls it a mystery, and I'm going to call it a mystery too. There is something in the relationship that God has set aside for a husband and wife, male and female, that somehow is reflective of His image. So that one of the purposes of marriage is not just giving us a way to express our romantic affection for someone, but one of the purposes in the Bible for marriage is the same as we talked about earlier. It is to reflect an image of God to the universe. So if the stars could look at us, if the mountains could look at us, if the oceans could look at us, all those things that we marvel at and go, wow, look at God. He is fantastic. He is marvelous. If those things could look at us, and if they could look at a husband and wife and, and marriage the way that God intended, the stars would look at that, the mountains would look at that and go, wow, I see God there. Now that will reshape how we look at marriage, won't it? To understand that marriage is really first and foremost about God and the male and female bringing them together somehow uniting them in one flesh, he describes that, and through that unification saying, that reflects me. Now how does that do that? I don't know, like I said, it's a mystery. And there's times that we're treading on things that we just don't understand. I could speculate a little bit, and I'm going to, just for fun of it. How does, how does the joining of male and female reflect God? Well, I'm going to speculate here just a little bit. Maybe one of the ways is this. We understand God to be Trinity, right? Three persons, one being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each distinct, each different person, if you will, all one being, all one God. Within that, there's not one less God, there's not one more God. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. God the Son is not more God or less God than God the Spirit. They're all equally God. Now, there is a division of roles within the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, isn't it? They each have different things that they do. But there is a unity and a love there. Maybe it's a, it's a way of showing us, I don't know, that as male and female come together, and as they become one flesh, as they have different roles, but they're equal, they reflect somehow an image of God that way. Maybe that's a possibility. Many folks, I, would, I wouldn't be the first one to have speculated that that might be part of it. Somehow the joining of the two reflects or images, if you will, the unity of God or God Himself. It's a reflection of the selfless love that God has for us. As husband loves wife, as wife loves husband selflessly, giving of themselves like any expectation of what's coming back. To, to give of themselves for the betterment of the other, it's a reflection of how God loves us, of the nature of who God, God is Himself. Now, I do want to remark here a couple of things. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, because some things are just obvious. 
God created humanity, male and female. And it is the joining of male and female that is the reflection of God's image. We live in a world, and by the way, this isn't new. We live in a world that wants to deny that or change that. I have, I have a feeling that almost every one of us in this room probably knows someone who claims to be homosexual. And it's not my goal this morning to harass or demean anybody in that situation. I don't think that's our role as Christians. And by the way, if we as Christians are hateful to someone, we're the ones sinning. It is not our role to hate someone. It is our role to love someone and bring them the gospel. And if I'm hating someone, it's going to be very hard for them to believe the gospel. But God did set up this male and female. And the reason we talk about homosexuality as an issue, and by the way, it's not new. Go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's pretty early on in the book of Genesis. <laughs> That's a long ways back. It was there. It is in the male and female coming together to become one flesh that God has said, that is my image. So why, can, why is homosexuality something that, that God speaks of as an abomination? Because God's saying, that's not who I am. Because God says, I have set this unity up. I have set the male and female thing up in marriage as a one flesh. That represents me. That's a reflection of who I am. That is my image. And we cannot change that and still say we're reflecting who God is. If the purpose of marriage is not primarily one of affection, now please, be affectionate <laughs> in marriage. Do that. Love one another. All that stuff. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm saying is this. Scripturally speaking, the main point of marriage is to reflect the glory and image of God. And I can't change that without marring, without scarring, without distorting God's image. If I am here and I am scratching and I am marring and I am attacking the image of God as He's presented it, what am I really doing? I'm guilty of idolatry. I'm guilty of blasphemy. Run the list down. So the Scripture speaks out against the idea of homosexuality, not because it wants people to be miserable or not because it's just hateful, but because marriage, male-female, is about representing the image of God. And I don't have the ability to tell God, I don't like your picture. That's what we're talking about here. Now, by the way, that's not just between homosexual. That's not just homosexual stuff. There is a unity in a marriage and heterosexual relationships as well. We can't be critical of homosexual relationships outside of that pattern of God without also making sure that we understand that God has set up very pretty strict rules for the heterosexual relationship as well. All right? Husband and wife joined together, period. There's not a bunch of extra stuff going on out there. All right? So we, we can't pick one sin and leave the other one out there. So God's image, Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, God's image is being represented in the joining of male and female. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the Apostle Paul goes into some greater detail on this as well, about the, the, uh, the point of or the goal of marriage. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, he, he calls it a mystery. Excuse me here as I get 
get to it here. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. He goes on, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. John Piper calls marriage a parable. Not only does it point to and give us an image of the character and the nature of God himself, it also looks forward to something else. Marriage is a parable. It's a glimpse. It's a look at what it will be like or the relationship that Christ has with the church. That's us, by the way. Heaven talks about what we sometimes call the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, who's getting married in heaven? It's Christ and the church. That's, that's the image there. And so marriage on earth among believers is meant to be a glimpse, a foretaste, if you will, of the relationship between Christ and His people, between our Savior and His church. So now we begin to understand why marriage is such a big deal. God has set it up, not just for things like procreation and passing down the faith from one generation to the next, which is important and our primary purposes of marriage as well, but mostly so that in the husband-wife, male-female one flesh relationship that we get a glimpse of the nature and the glory of God, the image of God, and we also get a glimpse into our future. It's a representation of Christ and the church. That's why God takes this whole marriage thing so seriously. Do we, do we, do we see the depth to which God is taking this? It's a big deal. So husband and wife, as you guys walk through life together, as you raise a family together, or as you grandparent together, or whatever it is you're doing together, you're doing all those things primarily so this world can see you and go, that's the image of God. And this world can see you and go, wow, that's how Christ relates to His people. That's a glimpse of the church. That's a glimpse of heaven. And we want to make sure we're presenting an accurate picture to the world, to the universe. So again, if the mountains and stars were looking at us, they could see, wow, that's God's image in that relationship. And that's a glimpse about what God is going to do one day with his church. Now, for those of you who aren't married, and I want to speak just for, for a moment in particular to those younger folks, or maybe our teenagers, or I know several of them are on, are on the mission trip this morning. If you're dating or you're not dating, I want you to understand something. You need to know the purpose of marriage before you get there. The purpose of marriage is to reflect the image of God. And if you are interested in somebody for reasons other than that, you would, you would be smart enough to realize that, that that young man, that young woman that you have an eye on, their relationship with them would, would not point people to God, would not reflect the character of God, would not reflect what God's going to do one day, Run away. Run away. This is God's intention for marriage. 
And to redefine it is to try to tell God that his image is somehow insufficient. That's a big deal. Now, Jesus has something else to say here. The disciples, quite frankly, were so shaken up. I think this will tell us what the culture was like. The disciples heard Jesus say that, and they went, Oh, man. (laughs) This is difficult. I think that says something to us about the culture in Jesus' day. The disciples take him aside, and they have more questions because they are bothered by this. And he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and if she herself divorces her husband and then marries another, he is committing, or she is committing adultery. Now, what is, what is going on here? Um, the, the scriptures do give two circumstances around which God permits divorce. And one of those is adultery. It's some form of, of, uh, of physical sin re- regarding sexual sin. Un- unfaithfulness, if you will, in that particular category. And God says that is permissible. The God doesn't command it. He just says it's permissible in that regard. Uh, the Apostle Paul will expand upon that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in particular, he's speaking to believers who are married to unbelievers. And understand that it was very common in that day and age for there to be a situation where perhaps as the church was just getting started for an adult believer who, or adult to, to come to Christ and their spouse to be unbelieving. And Paul says, if the unbelieving husband or the unbelieving wife wants to leave the believer, that they can be allowed to go. It's the, idea, the idea is one of abandonment. One issue that the Bible never directly addresses is what happens when one spouse is abusive. Uh, We have to kind of, honestly, the Bible doesn't address this one particularly, uh, or at least directly. What happens? I would would personally, I'm going to throw that one in the category, I'm going to say it's it's either abandonment or, I'm going to call it the category of abandonment. I'm not going to tell someone to stay in a situation where they or their children are in physical danger. So what does that mean if divorce takes place outside of those circumstances? Well, Jesus says something pretty, pretty harsh there, doesn't he? If divorce is for one of the, something outside those circumstances, he says it is a sin. And that to remarry is to further that sin if the divorce was in those situations. Now, I do want us to, I do want us to, to carefully look at a couple things here this morning. As we talk about sin in the area of marriage, I want us to understand this. All sins equal before God. Divorce is not an unforgivable act. There is grace and there is mercy and there is the presence of God in every situation. All right? I know there are some of you here this morning who have gone through the pain of divorce. I know some of you have dealt with it maybe with your parents or your grandparents or if you haven't gone through it yourself, you know someone who has gone through it. There's not a single one of us in this room, myself included, who have not experienced firsthand, perhaps, the pain of of divorce. My own parents are divorced. Uh, My dad left the ministry as a result 
of, of his divorce. Now, we were, we were older. I was an adult. But it doesn't make it any less painful. And so I do know the pain that comes from dealing with that. So what, what's, what's the result of that? Uh, first of all, this. Understand that all divorce, in the, in the situations that God permits it and the ones he doesn't, all divorce comes from acts of sin on somebody's part. All right? Sin's involved in the act of divorce. And if I do not acknowledge my own role in something, it doesn't matter how well-intentioned I may be, if I don't acknowledge my sin before God, I've got a problem. I've got a long-term problem in my relationship with Him. So whatever the situation was in a divorce, permitted or not, I need to at least begin to understand that I have a role before God to answer for it. I need to, as always, whether it's in a marriage situation or whether it's just in my daily life, I need to constantly be aware that I have things before God I need to confess and I need to be right with Him and I need to deal with those things. So I would encourage that, first of all, that if you this morning find yourself in a divorce, then maybe you're remarried, maybe you're not. Maybe you look back at your marriage and the divorce and you would recognize that that was, in fact, a situation that God permitted divorce. You were the innocent party and there's nothing to confess. And okay. But the truth is, marriages break up because of sin. We are a sinful species, aren't we? And so every sin we commit, whether it's in the area of marriage or divorce, or whether it's losing my temper at the boss at work, or whether it's stealing a pack of bubble gum from a convenience store, I don't care what it is. All sin requires me to acknowledge before God, I was wrong, please forgive me. And you know what happens when we pray for God's forgiveness? You know what happens when we repent and say, God, I was wrong? You know what happens the immeasurable, unconquerable, unlimited grace of God pours down. <laughs> I don't care what the sin is. I don't care what the situation is. If I come before God and I repent, He loves me and He pours His grace upon me and my sin cannot defeat the grace of God. So I, I do that. Now, Jesus says here, if you divorce for the wrong reasons and remarry, you're committing adultery. Okay. Maybe that describes you. Maybe it describes someone you know. I don't know what the situation is. So what happens now? Do I, go, do I divorce my current spouse and go back to the first one? No. You don't make one sin better by committing another one. You know what you do? You go, God, forgive me. Grace comes down. God forgives. And you live out one flesh from this point forward. It's pretty, I think it's pretty straightforward. You recognize what God wants to do in your current marriage and you live that moving forward. Again, this is not unforgivable. This is a situation like any other sin where God's grace pours in upon those who ask for forgiveness. Again, this is a big deal because of how God set those things up to be a reflection of His image now if you are this evening or this morning single whether you've never been married or whether you are divorced and have not been remarried does this mean that the image of god is not in you of course not we are all created in the image of god and there are those who i believe and paul talks about this 
Paul says God called him to be single. And Paul says there's actually advantages to living the life of a believer as a single individual. So if this morning you are single, whether you just haven't gotten to the age where you're married yet or you're old enough to be married, you just have never been married, or whether you're divorced, Paul would tell you in 1 Corinthians, don't sweat it out. In fact, Paul will say you have some advantages. There are some things that you can do in the service of God that those who are married can't. Here's the reality about being married. You guys know this as well as I do. There are obligations. There are responsibilities to having a family, to having a husband or a wife. And because of those things, you're not as perhaps free to go do this or do that as you might otherwise have been. But if you're single, if you don't have those attachments, you can go and do almost anything, anytime, anywhere. And Paul says, if you are single, man, he goes, you can be dedicated to the service of the Lord like nobody's business. Go for it. In other words, whatever stage of life you're in, never been married, married, married and divorced, widowed, widower, whatever it might be, you are made in the image of God. There's a plan for you that you can reflect God in your life. And if you are married, you do it one way. If you're unmarried, you can do it another way. God's got it no matter what. So there's no reason for anybody in here, single, married, divorced, to ever say before God, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. None of us can say before God, I've got a past that's just too bad to overcome. Or I can't do this or I can't. None of you can do that. Because God has created you in His image. He's equipped you to do what He's called you to do. And, when there's a, and it can be done in any of those contexts. Does that make sense? But I do want us to, to know this morning before we walk out of here. Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 is telling us the image of God and the male and female joined together is a big, big deal. So for those of us who are married, and this is not easy. (laughs) For those of us who are married this morning, our marriage's primary goal today in loving one another. We are to love one another. And there's, hopefully, there's romance there as well. There's commitment and there's all those things there. That in those things, we are reflecting the character and the image of God. And we are also, as people see us, giving them a glimpse as to what one day it'll be like when Christ presents us before the Father. That is your goal today as a married couple. It's your goal tomorrow. It's your goal this week and the next and the next. And if this morning you are single for whatever reason, you have the opportunity today to serve Him like the Apostle Paul did. Now there's a bar in it. (laughs) See that bar there? That's Apostle Paul. There, go for it. There it is. You've got that opportunity in front of you. God loves us. He set us up to be image bearers for His glory.